I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Here's a question you probably don't get asked very often. How would you describe your social class? Working class? Middle class? Upper class? Or maybe something else? If thinking about this question makes you feel kind of uncomfortable, well, that's pretty normal, especially if you're in a different class now than the one you grew up in. Jonathan Menhivar grew up working class, but now that he's an adult, that label doesn't really apply anymore. He likes eating oysters and wearing cashmere. He owns a house, and he feels kind of guilty about it. This is Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Today on the show, we're listening to the best new podcasts. Jonathan took his mixed feelings and turned them into a podcast about all the ways class shows up in our daily lives. It's called Classy. In this clip, we're going to hear Jonathan speak with a sociologist named Rachel Sherman. Let's listen. A few years back, Rachel Sherman was really interested in how rich people in particular spend their money. She wrote a book about it. It's called Uneasy Street. And she thought that if she could talk to people about the things they buy, what they're willing or reluctant to spend money on, then that would give her some insight into how rich people see themselves, how they feel about having all that money. So the way that I investigated that was by interviewing 50 uh, New York parents who were all in the top 2%, mostly in the top 1%, mostly not in the top 0.1%, so not like the super wealthy, about the lifestyle choices that they were making, which leads to you know, talking about money, talking about family, talking about the future, talking about people's jobs. The people she talked to made anywhere from $250,000 a year to over $10 million. How, uh, how willing were people to talk about this stuff? Well, <laughs> I mean, initially it was hard for me to figure out how to approach people. You know, the way that we talk about money is to not talk about it for the most part, right? So yeah. it was hard to be like, hi, I'd like to talk to you because you're rich. And I actually, I mentioned in the book, I had a woman um, who turned out that her family's assets were over $50 million. Oh my God. And she, when I asked her about the assets, she said, you know, that's so private. I feel like you're asking me if I masturbate. Whoa. And that freaked me out because I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I don't want to know about that at all. Like I got really weirded out. So instead of just flat out asking these wealthy New Yorkers about how much money they make or the balance on their brokerage accounts, Rachel found this workaround. She asked them about home renovations. And that's something people actually do want to talk about. As anyone who's ever done a home renovation knows, you can't stop talking about it, and I include myself. Rachel says that once she started interviewing these wealthy New Yorkers, one major theme emerged. It's not just us lobbying the accusation that rich people are bad at them and their penthouses. The rich people themselves are having this conversation. The people who I talk to 
were really working hard, although not always explicitly and not always aware of it themselves, to frame themselves as morally worthy people, like as good people, even though they had money. So they're always talking about being hardworking and, you know, having a work ethic, even if they don't actually work for money. And one thing that I hadn't really expected, although it makes sense in retrospect, is that a really big piece of this was talking about um, being like a reasonable consumer or a disciplined consumer. And so not wanting to be ostentatious or materialistic or, you know, show off your wealth or whatever. And so one example of that is a guy who I interviewed who his wealth comes from his family. So it's inherited wealth. Um, And he was renovating his home in Brooklyn. And he was telling me, you know, the contractor or the architect or whoever had wanted to put in like a really fancy stove. And he was like, no, you know, I don't want that kind of a stove that looks like it came from a luxury kitchen. And so, you know, it's not, I want the cheaper stove. It's like, I don't want the stove that looks fancy. I'm trying to picture that kitchen that in, in every other way would look incredibly fancy and then have the regular stove. Like does picking the, the normal stove, does that trick anyone? (laughs) Like what, what is that actually doing? You know? Well, that's what's so fascinating to me about it. I mean, th- this idea of like, who are you trying to fool? <laughs> you know, right, like right. there's another story in the book of a woman I interviewed who said she would hide the tags on her $6 bread, which maybe now, you know, $6 bread isn't, doesn't seem so expensive now. But she said, you know, for the, the house cleaner, I hide the tag on the $6 bread because I don't want her to see that. And I just thought, don't you think she knows that you're wealthy? Right. You know, like it, it doesn't take up literal price tag for the person who's cleaning your house to know that at least you're a lot wealthier than she is. You're you're hiding the tags from yourself. There are of course people who have no problem at all being ostentatious and showing off their wealth. Those people they're not the subject of this episode. It's the more, I don't know, self-conscious rich people, the ones who think that eating soft, luxurious bread with perfect crunch might be morally suspect. But also, they really want that bread. Those people are the ones we're interested in here. And some of those people Rachel talked to chose to run towards a class level that people seem to think is morally superior, the middle class. What I really saw in these interviews is the idea that the middle class is kind of a state of mind or identity, right, more than like actually literally an economic thing. So when you think of a middle class person, I I think often you're thinking of somebody who works for a living, maybe somebody who's been upwardly mobile. I think historically that's kind of what it meant. Um, It's somebody who is still thinking about money. So this is the way in which often my, the people I spoke to would say, like, I am not wealthy because I still think about money. Did they actually call themselves middle class, any of the people you interviewed? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some of them will call themselves middle class. Sometimes they'll say, you know, well, I was brought up middle class and I still feel middle class, even though now I'm upper middle class. I mean, someone said that to me, a woman said that to me who, had an income of over $2 million a year, a household income. Wow. 
I think if we're honest, a lot of us want to be perfectly middle class. That's this kind of moral safe zone. Not poor, where people say you're lazy or don't know how to handle your money. But also, not rich, living in a museum cleaned by other people. The middle class has become this Goldilocks income bracket. And it can be confusing what it even means anymore. But the implication is that the middle class is the humble income bracket, where we can provide for the people we love, but also not take more than our share of the pie. That's why it makes so much sense for my wealthy people who don't, you know, not my wealthy people, but the wealthy people I interviewed to uh, to be sort of what I call aspiring to the middle. They want to locate themselves in the middle class because that is the morally better class. You know, nobody wants to be the obnoxious rich person. You know who doesn't want to be the obnoxious rich person? I don't want to be an obnoxious rich person. <laughs> don't worry, I'm not in any danger of that happening. But, you know, there are some things about my life that some people might consider obnoxious. I mean, for one, I make a decent living doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Talking about ideas and putting together stories and sharing them with people like you. What an insane privilege that is. Or, you know, sometimes when I'm feeling stressed out and I need to center myself, I think about this time when I was in Japan, sitting in an onsen, staring at the mountains. An onsen is what the Japanese and also obnoxious people who've been to Japan call hot springs. And maybe the biggest one for me is that my wife and I own a house. My entire life, I was a renter. Growing up, there were a lot of Friday nights where my parents would drive up these beautiful hills to the nice neighborhood where our landlord lived so we could deliver the rent check in person on payday. But a little more than a decade ago, my wife and I scraped together the smallest down payment and managed to buy an old house that still needs a lot of work. I like living here. I can't believe we did it. And I'm also diminishing the achievement as I tell you, because I feel guilty about it too. I want everyone to have this. And I also want you to know how much of a struggle it was for us to get. I want you to know that I didn't grow up with privilege. And that if I lost my job tomorrow, I don't know what the f I'd do. That's the truth. But it's also, I recognize, a bit of self-preservation. That story about my class position is the morally better one. I know I'm not the only one who does this. No matter what our class position is, there's always someone above or below us that we're adjusting our story for. Rachel Sherman says that when she was interviewing wealthy New Yorkers, she found that when people were surrounded by other people who had more money than them, that's when they really played down what they had. These people who tended to work in finance or corporate law or real estate, they could look at the people around them and convince themselves that they were middle class. So only 1% of the people are above you, 99% of the people are below you, but symbolically you kind of, you know, locate yourself in the middle. Um, 
and yeah, sometimes explicitly saying, you know, we're middle class and the people who aren't middle class are the people who have a private plane or the people who never think about money, who never worry about money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I do some of that for sure where I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, I didn't like completely renovate my house before we moved in, you know, cause we couldn't afford it or whatever. No, that's what I think people often do. And I, you know, not just people I interviewed for that book, but also like I do it, my friends do it, you know, the sort of more upper middle class world that I'm in, people do it all the time. Everybody is diminishing their access to resources. They're not saying like, I have a lot, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> they're sort of saying like, well, look at this limit, right? That's why they're saying, well, we have a used car or, you know, I shop at Target or, you know, there's a story that I tell in the book about um, an interior designer. And he said, I always throw in pieces from Ikea or Crate and Barrel for my clients. And he said, they love that. It makes them feel better. And I think the idea was they want to feel like they're saving. And part of the reason they want to feel like they're saving is that they want to feel like there is a constraint. From Pineapple Street Studios, that was Classy with Jonathan Menhivar. He hosts and produced the show with Kristen Torres, Marina Hankey, Asha Saluja, and Haley Howell. Before we get into this next story, just a warning that it includes discussions about sexual abuse of minors. As a kid, Anne-Marie Robinson loved music. At her Toronto high school in the 1970s, she played the French horn in band class. But then, when she was 16, Anne-Marie says she was sexually assaulted by her band teacher on an overnight trip. After that, it turned into a coercive, secret relationship that lasted for more than a year. She dropped out of high school to get away from him and tried to put it all behind her. And for more than 40 years, she never spoke about what happened to her. But everything changed when she had a chance encounter with that same teacher. Anne-Marie told her story to Julie Ireton on the CBC podcast, The Band Teacher. Please note that masks are required if you are not actively eating or drinking during the service. Thank you and bon appétit. COVID restrictions are still in force in the winter of 2022. Anne-Marie and I and everyone around us are wearing masks. So we're heading, we're heading to Toronto. Yep. <laughs> we're on the train. The train starts moving out of the Ottawa station. Our bags and down coats are stored above, but Anne-Marie hangs on to a heavy tote, leaves it between our seats. How do, how do you feel about this trip? Uh, good. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of... For me, going back into the environment is a bit triggering. Yes. Yeah, so... Well, we're going to take care, and yeah. we're, we're going to, you know, you're going to let me know how, how you're doing, and... Yeah, no, I'll, I'll be fine. It's, it's good to get it done and get it over with. Yeah. It's really weird from a time frame, because for most of my life, when I wasn't dealing with it, I felt like this happened, like, 100 years ago. But now that I'm into it, I, it feels like it was literally yesterday. Morning, yeah, it's kind of a strange feeling. It's good because I'm finally dealing with it because I didn't process it for 40 years. I still feel like I'm that 15-year-old girl 
And so I'm trying to reconcile those things. For Anne-Marie, it was another little girl who helped her come to terms with her past. One of the tipping points for me coming forward, I think I told you this, was when I went to one of my daughter's band practices and I was setting up chairs on, I was a stagehand for a grade 9, 10 band when I was in grade 10 when he started to abuse me. And I just, like, I couldn't. I just suddenly realized, like, really, it was so stark. These little girls I saw them as, um, you know, I was a woman in my 50s at that time and I just couldn't understand how he could not see us as children. But, but did it make you better understand that you were a child and yeah. that you're not to blame and that this wasn't yeah. about something you did? Well, that took time because I think part of when predators groom children, they they groom you to be silent. And I think one of the main mechanisms is to make you feel ashamed of it. And I felt very ashamed um, my whole life. Anne-Marie reaches for that heavy tote bag. That's a school. Pulls out yearbooks from her old high school. This is the Eastern High School of Commerce, but then it was called Eastern Commerce later? Um, I think it's always Eastern High School of Commerce, but everyone just called it Eastern Commerce. Flips to the um, band section. Yeah, there he is right there. He enjoys all kinds of sports and he likes jazz music. Mr. Walker also plays the trombone in the Royal Regiment Band. He feels the student's best qualities are warmth and friendliness. That's ironic. <laughs> There's a photo of Anne-Marie and the music teacher from 1978. He's oh, tall, a broad smile under a bushy mustache. He wears a wide necktie and plaid shirt. The teacher and Anne-Marie stand together. He's about a head taller. She cradles the French um, horn he bought for her. But yeah, my name's there, yeah. This is where I first found the date for the Belleville trip, the one that um, I was sexually assaulted on. So there he is with the a jazz band, so I'm not in this picture. Now, where's Christine? There's Christine. Christine An old high up. school friend, someone we're going to meet in Toronto. The train comes into the station. We pack up the yearbooks, gather our things. Here we go. Anne-Marie and I arrive at the hotel bar at the Royal York. It's a Toronto landmark. Leather couches, dim lighting, and old books on shelves. Anne-Marie checks the time on her phone, then peeks above her glasses to scan the room. There's Christine there. Nice to meet you. Who gave that? Yeah. Your hair looks nice. It's a little darker. No. The women hug, then discreetly check each other out. There are changes since grade 11, like the tiny creases where blue eyeshadow used to shine. But one thing hasn't changed, the place they are now. He used to take us here to the Royal York, to the jazz club. Do you remember that? I do. That's yeah. where those pictures are. The he is Mr. Walker. As students, they drink here with their teacher. The two women lurch down memory lane. It's been so many years. Christine sort of knew what was going on between Anne-Marie and the teacher, but she sort of didn't. I kind of, I, I felt horrible, but I couldn't help you. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, know. I could only be there for you. I, could, I couldn't 
but it was I couldn't help life. you because what, what could I say or do? You were in love with him and he made you feel those feelings, right? So how, how do you as a 15 or 16 year old make sense of that? Christine's description comes straight from the romantic memory of a kid in grade 10. Back then, Anne-Marie did think it was love with a man, but she soon saw it as manipulation, assault. He, he raped me and then he... Was it a hard rape? Was it, I mean, a, no, I didn't physically resist, but right, I because, didn't... It wasn't consensual, but he knew it was wrong. No, I knew it was wrong and he was my teacher and so I did what he... Christine also recalls the music teacher singling Anne-Marie out for special attention. You were like the pet. That's what people felt like? Do you remember that he bought me a horn? Yes. That he used like the entire band budget to buy me a, an instrument. Yeah, I was mad. Anne-Marie wants to know how Christine perceived the teacher. Do you consider yourself a victim of him? Of him? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. yeah. Christine because says he, the music teacher would yeah. often make sexual comments. There were kisses and hugs, yeah. pinches yeah, on the yeah. bum. Because years later, I still, yeah, for sure, because I was still affected by it. I still had memories of feeling hurt. It hurt me by, by growing, by building that relationship, that, that friendship. It, it that weird friendship that we yeah. should, yeah, it was not normal. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll have the uh, steak fritz, or called something else. We order food. Yeah. Anne-Marie and Christine order wine. There's confusion about some recollections, experiences lived so long ago. This is the first stop on our fact-finding mission. Anne-Marie hoped Christine would have insight, maybe even names, clues. Could there have been other girls at their school who had the same experience? But Christine doesn't provide those leads. Instead, she tries to get Anne-Marie to see it through Walker's eyes. So, you know, you have to look at two sides. You look at your side, which is a horrendous experience. Compared to his side, he did nothing wrong. You, you know, for, as far as he's concerned, you were okay with it. But I'm saying you've got to put yourself on the other side. And what is okay with him? I mean, we're playing psychology here, but yeah. Um, well, you have to be friends again. We do, yeah. Later that night, I find myself tossing and turning over that conversation at the Royal York Bar. I think Anne-Marie expected unqualified support, solidarity. But it kind of fell short of that. I could see disappointment in Anne-Marie's eyes. In the last season of The Band Played On, many of the survivors I spoke to were men. They were teen boys when they were propositioned, touched, or assaulted by male teachers. I documented horrible, inexcusable crimes. No one ever questioned whether those boys consented. The come-ons from men to boys were always considered wrong, inappropriate, illegal. Anne-Marie was 16. She says she was groomed, felt trapped, couldn't say anything. But in this case, she was a girl, and it appears society applies a different set of standards. There are assumptions made. It's the natural order of things that the man may not be entirely at fault. I make a mental note. I need to investigate this further. My gut tells me there's a bigger story here with implications going way beyond Anne-Marie.
From CBC Ottawa and CBC Podcasts, that was The Band Teacher. It's written, hosted, and produced by Julie Ireton, along with Allison Cook and Felice Chin. If you're in crisis and need support, you can call the Salal Sexual Violence Support Center's 24-7 hotline at 1-877-392-7583. It's toll-free anywhere in Canada. If you're in the U.S. and need support, you can call the RAIN National Sexual Assault Hotline 24-7 at 800-656-4673. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Unless you're a music historian, you've probably never heard of the composer Raymond Scott. He was a popular jazz and swing musician in the 1930s and 40s and later became a pioneer in electronic music. His true passion was inventing new ways to create music, and he spent decades working on an automatic songwriting machine that could generate its own melodies. And this was all long before the existence of anything resembling a modern computer, let alone artificial intelligence. He called his invention the Electronium, and in the early 70s, it got the attention of Barry Gordy, who founded the record label Motown. The podcast, The Last Archive, told that story in the first episode of their new season. If you wanted to buy an Electronium from Raymond Scott, it was going to cost you an arm and a leg. And it was a crazy idea. So it was by a stroke of luck that the head of Motown Records, Barry Gordy, heard about it. It's not a one-man organization or a two-man organization, but it is an organization of teamwork. You know, I mean, there's unseen heroes, so to speak. Barry Gordy founded Motown in 1959 in Detroit. Before founding the company, he had worked at a car factory during the years when there was lots of hubbub over plants that had achieved near-full automation. It was on the assembly line that Gordy started to think about doing music differently. In his autobiography, he wrote, At the plant, the cars started out as just a frame, pulled along on conveyor belts, until they emerged at the end of the line. I wanted the same concept for my company, only with artists and songs and records. Motown was a black-owned business, selling music by black artists to everyone in America. Like everything in the music business, it was precarious economically, because hit records deal in matters of taste, and taste is subject to biases and whims. Gordy, with his assembly line passed, wasn't having that. He wanted to systematize as much as possible. They'd A-B test songs with different artists until something stuck, like R&D. They had a house band, the Funk Brothers, providing ironclad rhythm section arrangements across Motown songs, as if they were the engine department. The only thing missing was the automation. And that's why it makes sense to me that one day in the early 1970s, Barry Gordy pulled up to Raymond Scott's warehouse with a string of limos to see the automatic songwriting machine for himself. 
And by the way, Barry Gordy knew who Raymond Scott was, like anybody of his generation. Raymond Scott was a famous person. So Gordy also knew he was getting that in the deal. Someone who is a musical mind who has already written hits. Scott showed Gordy and his crew the warehouse. And then he fired up the electronium, just like he did with Ray. He must have shown Gordy how you flip the switches to set a pattern, then watched as the machine iterated, changing notes, repeating phrases, rifling through ideas semi-randomly. Uh, and during all during the last couple of minutes, the pattern generator was on only slightly, only one, four, five, and then four. Scott was selling an idea at that point, the potential of a songwriting machine that could hit on an idea that a person alone never would. If it came up with a hook that sparked in the way a hit does, you'd know it when you heard it, and you could bottle it up and sell it to millions of people. This idea, I think, came straight from Scott's quintet days, finding that sound that you like the first time you hear it. It's a tricky balancing act, because it has to be new enough that it catches your attention, but a hit also has to sound familiar enough that you kind of know what you're going to get as soon as you hear it. It's like an elevator pitch to the listener, and Gordy was uncompromising about it. Here's Smokey Robinson in a 2019 documentary remembering that process. He used to say that all the time. We got to get him in the first 10 seconds. We had to come up with these fabulous intros, you know, something that would catch your attention immediately. So in that light, the electronium makes perfect sense to me. What if you could take a machine that had baked into it all of the patterns and intuitive musical sense of a proven hitmaker like Scott, but then this crazy X factor of proto-artificially intelligent randomness. That dream was Scott's life's work. He needed it to work. Everything was riding on it. So Gordy was so impressed that he wrote a check on the spot for $10,000 to get started. And that was a lot of money back then. It was a huge windfall. Scott was overjoyed. Gordy wanted the instrument remade to suit Motown's needs, so Scott began work immediately. The machine would be a culmination of everything he'd worked on up to that point, including the player piano from his childhood. Here's a call from a couple years earlier between Scott and Bob Moog, the synthesizer legend who'd worked with him. And this knocked me out when I first heard it in the archives, but he was still thinking about the player piano. You can hear the ideas just bursting out of him. I have something that I think will absolutely flip you, and uh, this is hardly secret, hardly secret stuff. But uh, uh, well, I'll have to explain it to you when I see when I see it. Okay. But the you know, the programming is inevitable. I mean, you know, the computing machines are programming things, and the playing piano is programming things, and all the automated tools are programming things. Yeah. And so the uh, programming is, it's got to be the way it's done. A player piano for the space age. Scott, of course, quickly blew through the Motown down payment and ran out of time, but Gordy didn't seem to mind. Scott moved out to Motown's offices in Los Angeles to work on the Electronium in a room above Barry Gordy's garage. He became the director of electronic music research and development. Eventually, he started to work on the machine in the Motown studios. People were in awe of him. I'm thinking of a couple different engineers who were up there. Um, who would just come out and be like shaking their heads, kind of like, like, you know, what is going on kind of thing. Scott's daughter, Deb Studebaker again. According to a former engineer at Motown, Michael Jackson would come by Scott's studio, a small room on the second floor, and watch the electronium work. 
It made music unlike anything they'd heard. The idea wasn't that the machine would write a complete song structure, verse, chorus, bridge, but that it would iterate on combinations of rhythm, chord, and melody in search of that spark. It was a way of automating the part of songwriting Scott excelled at, the thing that caught your ear and made you like something the first time you heard it. It was meant as a collaboration between man and machine, one that took the hard work out of the most crucial part of the songwriting process. The inspiration. But over time, the extreme cost weighed the project down. Also the fact that Scott was never satisfied, refused to be finished. The electronium worked. It just was always opened up, being redesigned, refined, changed. At one point, that same engineer tried to get Motown's famous session musicians to play along with the machine as part of a drive to use the instrument on a recording, but they revolted. They, they didn't like it. They didn't like the idea of it. They didn't like the concept. They didn't like what it theoretically represented. And these guys were great musicians. They didn't want to be replaced by a machine. It's not known whether the Electronium ever suggested an idea that made it into a Motown song, but I think it's unlikely. Gordy let Scott take the Electronium home with him eventually, to tinker with it around the house. He'd stay up all night and work on it all day in his pajamas, building new bits and pieces, taking it apart and building it again. Then his health got worse. The music industry moved on, started to forget about him. He had several strokes, and the Electronium sat in the guest shed out back, gathering dust, waiting to be found. Well, it's Dr. Frankenstein's monster, isn't it? Brian Kehue again. Synthesizer wizard, former keyboardist for The Who, Fiona Apple producer, and the second person this episode to bring up Frankenstein's monster. More happily, in this case, about a machine rather than a person. He's working now to bring the Electronium back to life. We spoke last winter. And so, Electronium might be literally just a piece of inspiration. If I play piano or if I play guitar and write songs, my fingers are even limiting because I tend to play a certain chord shape or I'm, I'm jazzier and he's more country. But if the electronium is not confined by those things, it might come up with ideas that are beautiful hybrids, maybe a little jazzy, but a little polka. And who knows what it would come up with. But that's an idea to say that the human creativity is limited. It's a beautiful thing when it works, but as we know, you can't just write great music all day, otherwise everybody would. I guess part of the problem is like in a creative line of work, your business, especially when you're Motown, which is an empire at that point, is totally dependent on this fundamentally unknowable, unreliable thing, which is human creativity. Like you never really know when the muse is going to strike. And so especially with the kind of assembly line Motown idea, if you could just make that predictable and automate it, the aha moment, then that would take a lot of the uncertainty out of the business. I think you pointed out something that most people don't want to ever mention, which is that creativity is unreliable. You might be Paul McCartney and able to write some of the world's greatest songs, but if I brought him in the room right now and gave him an hour, said, write me a great song, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But you can understand why someone who devoted his whole life to making perfect music wished that it did.
From Pushkin Industries, that was The Last Archive. It's written and hosted by Ben Nadef Haffrey. Their team includes Lucy Sullivan, Sophie Crane, Jake Gorski, and Jill Lepore. Up next is an independent podcast from BC's Columbia River Basin. The Headwaters launched their second season earlier this year. It's a show about the people, landscapes, and history of the region. The episode we're going to hear is about the history of transportation in the Kootenai Mountains. These days, driving is pretty much the only way to get around in that part of the country. But before the car took over, passenger rail travel was king. With more, here's host Mitchell Scott. We begin our journey with a ride you can't take in the Kootenays on a passenger train. A century ago, that's how people got around the basin, by riding the rails and linking up with paddle wheelers that plied Kootenai Lake and its surrounding rivers. Sadly, they don't anymore, because there are no passenger trains that originate here in the Kootenays. We asked Headwaters historian Greg Nesteroff to look into why that is. So Greg, have you ever actually ridden a passenger train here in the basin? Well, I've taken the five-kilometer excursion train from Fruitvale to Beaver Falls. I didn't even know that existed. I hadn't heard of that. Well, this is probably 20 years ago, but I think they they still do run occasional excursions. But, you know, that hardly counts as a train trip. Um, I'm not young, but I am too young to have traveled in the Kootenays by train, which is a shame because the railway really helped open up the Columbia Basin. What do you mean by that? Well, before we get into what happened to rail travel in the Kootenays, we're going to need some history. So... Let's step back in time to when the train was the most comfortable, efficient way to get around. So watch your step, and all aboard. If you want to get on a passenger train in the Kootenays, I'm afraid you're going to have to do it in a museum. Either the steam train at Fort Steele, or the two fabulous railway museums in the Kootenays. Where are these museums? In Revelstoke and Cranbrook. It's a bit ironic you can't take a train anywhere in the basin, but we have these museums dedicated to them. Really good ones. That irony is not lost on a historian. I'm a museum guy, but I would have loved to have traveled on one of those trains. And where are we here? At the marvelous Cranbrook History Center, formerly the Canadian Museum of Rail Travel. Or to be more specific, we're on the Sioux Spokane Passenger Train, which is really stepping back in time. And just over a century ago, between 1907 and 1914, the Sioux Spokane used to arrive daily in Cranbrook from all over North America. And it's magnificent, with Honduran mahogany finish and well-appointed sleeping berths. This train even had a library. Real travel in luxury, like rich, deep mahogany wood. This was not your everyday passenger train. For one thing, from Cranbrook, you could basically get anywhere you wanted on the continent via this train and its connections. It went from from Cranbrook across the Great Plains to Minneapolis. The Sioux Spokane Deluxe was a high-end way to travel. Along with us on this rail journey is historian Robert Turner, who knows as much about train travel as anyone in this country. Very much a first-class premium fare train. It wasn't the immigrant coaches with hard seats that uh, people coming to settle in in British Columbia often rode in. It wasn't the the day coach. This had dining cars, uh, full uh, sleeping car services and lounge cars. So it was the way the, the richer folks would travel. When did this kind of train travel begin in the Coonies? It started in 1885. That's when they opened up the Transcontinental Railway through the Rogers Pass. That was the first train that went through the Kootenays. 
So it opened this area up to Canada, really. Canada became a nation after the railway made it to British Columbia. Right. But the true rail building frenzy here didn't happen until the 1890s. And, and that wasn't to move people so much as it was to move mining during the gold and silver booms. The, ga- the great Galena rush. Exactly. So they had short spur lines that were built down from the main CPR line into the Kootenays and up from Washington State. And before the end of the century, we got another main line into the southern Kootenay. Here's Robert again. The railways initially filled in gaps between the steamer services on the rivers. And there was also railways built up from the Spokane area and in Washington that same period of the 1890s. It wasn't until 1898 that the railway was built through the Crow's Nest Pass. So the golden years of rail travel here were right at the beginning of the 20th century, right around the time the Sioux Spokane was operating. And there were train stations in places like Cranbrook and Revelstoke and Fernie that were absolutely bustling. We actually have our office in the old railway station here in Nelson, it was, which was derelict for many years, but has since been renovated and is now a center again. Yeah, it's a beautiful building, and many of these stations were the center of action in their towns. And you could take passenger trains between them. Or to towns like uh, Sandon and Morrissey and Girard, which are mostly ghost towns now, but... Trains and boats really were how people got around in those days. Okay, Greg, so when does it actually really start to all fall apart? First World War. That was hard on a lot of the rail companies. And that's when the Sioux Spokane stopped running, right at the beginning of the war. And this was all the young miners, the men were getting shipped off to fight in Europe. Yeah, and it also coincided with roads between the towns starting to be built. The almighty car. I know. In the 20s, the province went on a a road-building spree, and they engineered the first road that went right across the province. Highway 3. Highway 3. Went right to the Alberta border in 1928. Then came the Depression, and another war, and the rail lines were abandoned, especially the passenger routes. Here's Robert again. The decline came really in in the 1920s, when roads were beginning to be a network that you could travel on. And as more people got cars, bus services were developed in the Kootenays. So it it became less convenient. Um, Service was starting to decline. That really accelerated after World War II. And that's when so many of the branch line passenger trains were, were discontinued. So by the 1950s, the automobile started to take over. And the last paddle wheelers were retired in the Kootenays. And then the Trans-Canada was completed. Over Rogers Pass. Over the Rogers Pass. That pretty much ended it for passenger trains. The last passenger train originating here, the Dayliner that went through the Crow's Nest Pass, stopped running in 1964. And passenger trains that originated in the Kootenays were done. What a loss. Huge loss. 60 years we've had no passenger trains here. I know. By contrast, during the post-war boom, Europe and Asia, they were investing heavily in their passenger train service while we abandoned ours. I've traveled a bunch in Europe, and it's incredible where you can go on trains, and exactly on time. And yet here, we completely turned our backs on rail travel, and we bought into the personal vehicle. So now we have very little public transportation here, and it started with the end of passenger trains. From the Columbia Basin Trust and Kootenai Mountain Culture Magazine, 
That was the Headwaters podcast. It's hosted by Mitchell Scott. Their team includes Bob Keating, Jesse Lee, Tara Cunningham, Vince Hempsall, and Peter Moynes. Without is a new podcast hosted by the Canadian journalist Omar el Each episode asks the question, what would life be like without something we've all grown accustomed to having around? Whether it's something that seems innocuous like sand or life-saving like antibiotics, the world would be a very different place without them. The episode we're going to listen to is about coffee. And by the way, this isn't just a thought experiment. Studies have found that because of factors like climate change, there's a real risk that more than half of coffee species could go extinct. With more, this is Without. The modern world could fall apart without coffee. From boutique single origins to diner mud, coffee is the most widely imbibed psychoactive stimulant on Earth. Roughly 125 million people depend on coffee to earn a living, all tied to a product susceptible to climate change, unpredictable markets, and a supply chain so convoluted, most people have no idea how it works. For all the coffees that the world consumes, we really only drink two types, Arabica and Robusta. And of those two, Arabica is by far the favorite. It's also the one that could easily disappear. Today we take a trip around the planet, to farms big and small. We look at where the world's favorite coffee is going and how we keep those beans in stock. And if we can't, what would life be like? That's ahead. It's one of those cliched things people say when someone joins the family business, but Gustavo was born with coffee in his blood. He grew up on the family's coffee farm and figured he knew as much as he needed to, which wouldn't have to be much. Gustavo had different interests. He'd left the farm years ago. So my father passed away and he inherited the farm to me. I quit my job, quit everything and came back, you know. At the time, Gustavo was living in South Africa. He'd established himself there, working in biochemistry. My idea was that it's going to be something set that I have to learn and run, you know? And what's not that, you know, was completely the opposite. And I didn't know anything, you know, about agriculture whatsoever. And I, I thought that I will rely on a lot of uh, local knowledge and learning curves because it's the same activities. You have, you have to prune, you have to clean. This was a large farm, generations old. For another country, it will be a small farm. But for Guatemala, which is a small country, mountainous country, will be regarded as a, as a medium, big-sized coffee plantation, yes. So it was really terrible, you know, really terrible. It's, still it is, you know. If you want to run a farm like this, there are certain things you need to learn about, like weather patterns, seasonal changes. Weather is a constant uh, phenomenon in any agricultural production. Always plays a role. But the one that uh, really threatened the industry was coffee rust. If you've never heard of it, coffee rust is a disease that can wipe out entire harvests. It's one of the biggest killers of coffee plants in the world. Coffee rust was almost like the COVID pandemic, you know? So the obvious effect was the, it's a fungus, came to the leaf, killed the leaf, so the plant has to be pruned, you know? The most destructive wave of coffee rust to hit this region in recent years came back in 2012. That one, uh, this was that decimated 
And when he says decimator, Gustavo's not being entirely hyperbolic. First, you lost this crop. Then there was a, a lot of side effects. So the, the lifespan of a plant came like in 50%. Was a, what was a good productive plant of, for let's say 50 years, now is 20. These numbers aren't uncommon. Coffee rust is a byproduct of climate change, and it's affecting coffee growing regions across the equator. Scientists predict that in the next three decades, 60% of the land that Arabica grows on will become unusable for the crop. That's a lot less coffee. Do you ever just get sick of coffee? Like, do you ever just like. I don't. I don't. I have. You know, I say this thing to my children sometimes, which is like, if you're bored, it's your own fault. <laughs> because the world is amazing. There is so much to captivate one. And what captivates Hannah Neuschwander is coffee. She's the strategy and communications director at the World Coffee Research Center. It's an organization that spends a lot of time and money trying to figure out ways of saving the crop from looming disasters. We are created by, funded by, directed by the coffee industry. So it is coffee roasters, coffee importers and exporters, coffee equipment manufacturers. They're kind of like an insurance company for the future of coffee. And a lot of the time they're looking for types of beans that might one day supplement or maybe even replace Arabica. If you were to compare the state of coffee agriculture mm -hmm. 30 or 40 years ago to today, what are the biggest changes in, in how that, that industry works? Most farmers are still working with varieties that were developed 50, 60, 70, or more than 100 years ago. And that's kind of like saying, you know, okay, well, we're doing a podcast right now. This would be like recording a podcast without mobile equipment or <laughs> running your, you know, your entrepreneurial business without a laptop. If you're a farmer who makes your living selling a certain bean, Adaptation isn't easy, and it's almost always an expensive proposition. Hannah's organization is trying to make that change a little more approachable. We focus on variety development, but also on um, creating access to better varieties for uh, farmers around the world. Variety is designed to guard against everything from hot weather to cold weather, coffee rust to drought. We do breeding trials, so we actually create new varieties or work with partners to create new varieties. We look at existing varieties um, that maybe are doing really well in one place, but haven't been tested yet in other places. Um, and we also look at things like, how do farmers get access to better varieties once they exist? Thing is, for farmers like Gustavo, it's not just a matter of getting your hands on this new bomb-proof technology and a little while later, reaping the benefits. If somebody said, hey, this one, it tastes good, it grows well here, and it's resistant to coffee leaf rust, how risky would that be for you? Now, it's high risk, you know? It's not something that is so simple because you have to wait first for the second harvest to see if it was the right choice. This takes seven years to you. What when after seven years, you decide it's not the right one. For Gustavo, you have to look down the road. And that's because with a large farm, it can be hard to make changes. It's a bit like driving a semi or a freight ship. Like you see, a, you, you ask like a big, uh, big truck, you know, and they will tell you, look, uh, just stop, you know, or you see a ship, a big cargo ship, you have to put the brakes and stop, you know. They will take a look, will take me three kilometers to break, you know? Well, if you take a small boat, make a U-turn, they will tell you, with pleasure, well, I will make a U-turn, you know? 
From Sony Music Entertainment and Hyper Object Industries, that was Without. It's written and hosted by Omar el Their team includes Claire Slaughter, Harry Nelson, Anil Klein, Lushik Lotus-Lee, and Fendel Fulton. And that's all the time we have for Podcast Playlist this week. If you heard something you like and you want to know more, you can find links and more information on everything we played today at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast Playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva with technical support from Lada Antonelli. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.